Today's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by Case Fleet. What could be more important than knowing the facts of your case inside and out? That's where Case Fleet comes in. Case Fleet's revolutionary and easy-to-use software makes it easy to create a chronology of each case and to track the evidence for each fact. With an intuitive interface, full-text search, and built-in document review, Case Fleet makes fact management easy. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Uh, hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. <laughs> Hi, everyone. How are you guys? Bill, a really tentative hello, hello for a day where I'm immediately going to say uh, Oscars are coming up this weekend, and I'm excited. Are they, though? If a, if a, <laughs> if a tree falls in the forest kind of thing with the Oscars <laughs> this year. Is okay. it the Oscars? I don't know. Let me explain why I'm excited. I am a big movie buff. We all are on this show. Yeah. But I usually watch all of the Best Picture nominated movies as part of a girls weekend I do every year. And we do Mm -hmm. it marathon style at an AMC theater. We're usually in DC for this. And we watch them all in 24 hours. So the usually, logistics of which have have mystified Alex and I for, for Oh, I love it. It's like it's like <laughs> a years, slumber party but, with movies. Yeah. But what has happened this year because of COVID is that's canceled. Right. And at first I was sad about it, still am. But uh, it's given me this new opportunity where I can talk about any of these movies this year <laughs> because I've actually seen them well in advance instead of just the day before. Uh, I uh, I personally have never been more, and I'm a huge Oscars nerd and a huge uh, movie buff as well, but I've never been more checked out of an Oscars, mostly because of, I mean, I just, I love going to the theater, and even though sure. it was... E- it, even though it was easier than ever to actually see these things if you want, you know, you right. rent them for a nominal fee or whatever, you watch them in your house, it's not, it doesn't have the same juice for me. And I was sort of disengaged and I'm not, I'm not exactly happy about it. But Amber, if you want to give us a readout on any of the legal I, adjacent uh, uh, Oscar faves. Yeah, I can start by saying I do think it was a pretty good year for movies, all things considered. I mean, people really yeah. wondered, like, what in the world would even be nominated in this very strange year we've all just lived through? But no, good movies this time. And there are some legal connections. There was um, Trial of the Chicago 7, which is an Aaron right. Sorkin movie. If you've ever seen anything by Aaron Sorkin before, you have basically seen this movie. But <laughs> that they're good. I mean, they're always pretty good. And mm-hmm. this was no exception. Sasha Baron Cohen, very good in it. See, I was too busy to watch any of the Oscar movies this year because I was just watching uh, the film Cocktail and uh, live text, <laughs> sure. live texting it uh, to to Look, Alex about it. So gotta have priorities. I snubbed. mean, that, that I mean, Cocktail right. roundly snubbed at the eighty six Oscars. We don't have to relitigate <laughs> that now. Um, all right, all right. I might, I might be but anyway, uh, yeah, we're all looking forward to that show, and we're looking forward to this show. Uh, you guys want to talk about uh, uh, what was uh, what's on the what's on the menu today? Yeah, obviously the biggest news story this week in the world, really, but specifically in legal news, was the conviction of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. We yeah. had Kara Bayless come back on the show. She, if if our listeners recall, was on several weeks ago sort of setting up what to watch in the trial. She watched the whole thing, reported on it um, top to bottom for Law 360. So we had her come back on and really break down how the prosecution won. Um, really interesting chat. It was a really great chat. Kara is an amazing resource, uh, you know, to to bring her on and have her yep. break it all down for us was was great. But 
Um, before we get to that, uh, we have a couple news stories to break down this week. Uh, the first of which is a messy little story from inside a big law firm um, uh, involving accusations that an attorney at uh, Little or Mendelssohn, a, a powerhouse employment law firm, Amber knows all about them, uh, that he threw a longtime client, quote, under the bus, end quote, and um, uh, lied to a federal judge about uh, this subpoena process in an otherwise fairly run-of-the-mill case. Um, the story was all over uh, legal Twitter and the legal news world this week, so uh, I think we got to break it down here. Yeah, this sounds messy. Um, yeah, Littler's- We live for drama. I mean, this <laughs> I mean, is this is I mean, this, honestly, is, this, this is, is canonical at this point. Yeah, it's yes. right in our real house here. Um, Littler is really well known in the employment law space. I mean, they're one of the heavy hitters there. So, uh, you, you don't necessarily expect something like this. Let's let's go through the background of what happened. So we're talking about an attorney at Littler named uh, Gavin Appleby. And um, so he was representing a stainless steel manufacturer called Otokumpu in a fairly unremarkable wage and hour lawsuit filed Mm -hmm. in Alabama federal court. Really nothing to write home about there. But in late March, uh, the... Uh, ADP, which is the the, the big payroll servicing giant, uh, yeah. you can probably go look at your paycheck and you'll see their name. Um, they were not a party to this case, but they were they asked for sanctions in this case against Appleby, uh, citing some very unusual allegations of impropriety during the course of the lawsuit. So ADP's allegations go like this: apparently, Appleby issued a subpoena uh, last summer to ADP as part of this case, seeking documents um, involved for, for these uh, these em- employees at this stainless steel company. The company, uh, ADP, quickly responded uh, to the subpoena and you know got the documents that were required back to them in something like five days. So ADP was very confused and sort of surprised to learn months later that they were being summoned into court on fairly short notice to answer to a angry federal judge who wanted to know why the documents that had been the subject of the subpoena had never been produced. So according to ADP, Appleby just never handed these documents back over to to the plaintiffs once he got them at, at via this subpoena. And when the judge got angry and set a show cause hearing for why, uh, you know, to figure out why ADP hadn't apparently turned over these documents, Appleby didn't tell ADP about it until just before, which then forced them to then miss that hearing, which further angered uh, the judge. <laughs> and the real kicker here, which I think is why, why it gained so much traction in the legal world, was that ADP was a client of Littler in other cases. They were a big client. I mean, if you're a, you're yeah. a wage and hour comp, uh, uh, law firm, you know, you're going to deal with, with somebody like ADP quite a bit. Um, so the company said it was, quote, shocked unquote, to learn that its own attorney had done this, subjecting it to potential contempt of court sanctions. The quote from ADP. Defense counsel threw their client, ADP, under the bus by misrepresenting to the court, both verbally and in writing, that ADP had never responded to the subpoena. These misrepresentations led the court to believe that ADP never bothered to respond at all to the subpoena. I mean, you got to be responding to subpoenas. I am not an employment lawyer. I don't pretend to be one. Amber knows much more about it than I do. But, uh, you know, uh, these these are sort of basic obligations. And uh, the company is very obviously uh, angry about it. What did the judge have to say? So this week, the judge got around to dealing with this this issue, and um, a, a judge by the name of uh, Jeffrey Beaverstock, a federal judge in Alabama, he agreed that sanctions uh, against 
Appleby uh, were in order here. He issued mm-hmm. a ruling that said in its motion, ADP, quote, accurately sets out underlying misconduct justifying an award. Hmm. So basically everything that ADP had said, you know, that the, the, that had accurately laid out something that was sanctionable. He's um, like, they they said you threw him under the bus and uh, that looks good to me, the judge. Right, so right. Uh, <laughs> tough, tough, tough draw for Littler there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think what's interesting is that the judge noted that Littler hadn't really opposed the motion, hadn't really fought back. Yeah. And, okay. and instead, um, uh, quite the opposite. They had reached out directly to ADP and had offered to pay them more than $63,000 in attorney's fees and costs that ADP had spent dealing with this entire debacle. This is but what a- happens when you have a, a client that you have had this happen with and you're trying to smooth things over. Amber probably had a client. Um, but, uh, but so ADP apparently declined to withdraw the motion for sanctions. Uh, an attorney for the company told, uh, our reporter, Andrew Strickler, who has been covering this for us, um, that the company quote, wanted to be vindicated in an order where the judge would confirm ADP didn't do anything wrong. End quote. So one last thing, um, on, on top of the whole fiasco costing littler, uh, you know, all this money. And, um, as I just sort of you know, lightly alluded to probably as a client. Yeah. Um, it's probably going to lose their client. Uh, the, the, the current case, this, this wage and hour case that where all of this is taking place. Um, judge Beaverstock, uh, apparently indicated during a hearing that he might even consider issuing a default judgment for these, uh, plaintiffs who had sued this stainless steel company, um, as a result of this whole mess. So really just uh, a trifecta of bad results for, for littler. Yeah, we often on the show talk about sort of low points in various attorneys' careers. Uh, seems like a real bad run for for Appleby. Do we know what's gone on with him? So it appears that he no longer works at Littler. Um, the coverage has been has been cagey, but what we do know is that he his name has been his name and bio page have been removed from their website. Um, a spokesperson told us that uh, the firm does not comment on personnel matters. They filed a a document in the case, sort of you know uh, apologizing to a certain extent about how this had happened and that it was a, an individual attorney. Um, I will say, uh, from, from at least from court filings, from ADP's accusations, uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't appear to be his first disciplinary issue. Uh, oh. Appleby, in 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 its motion, ADP claimed that he had been um, previously sanctioned multiple times in another case uh, for quote withholding documents, causing inexcusable delay, and repeatedly thwarting a plaintiff's discovery efforts. So, you know, if 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 this wasn't the first time, maybe that factored into it. Um, uh, one one last thing, and I'll get us out on this, is that we're now in it's sort of a Russian doll story uh, yeah. here. We're now in a ker- kerfuffle over who will replace Littler in this case. Um, the defendant is trying to substitute new attorneys into the case, um, and this is it's so bizarre that I was reading the docket and I couldn't <laughs> believe what I was reading. They're trying to hire the same law firm where Judge Beaverstock, who I mentioned before, is overseeing the case, the same firm where he worked until 2017 when he was appointed to the bench by President Trump. The (laughs) plaintiffs have filed a motion saying that that would obviously raise all sorts of recusal issues for this case if the judge overseeing it is now that his former law firm is now in the case. They questioned the motives for why they were then seeking to hire the attorneys where where the judge used to work. It's just a very strange sort of, you know, extra chapter on what was already a strange and messy story. Next up, I want to zoom out a little bit on a um, 
sort of news item that is uh, from last week. Actually, the uh, as people may as people probably heard, uh, the infamous Wall Street fraudster criminal uh, Bernie Madoff passed away in prison last week, um, and you know a lot of ink was spilled about this legacy of uh, unprecedented financial misdeeds and fraud that left uh, many of his uh, clients in financial ruin. Um, but uh, we had a lot of interesting coverage uh, on the site last week about the sort of long shadow that Madoff casts, specifically in the legal and compliance world, um, especially for, for, for white-collar attorneys. Um, basically, the broker's sort of year-long Ponzi scheme proved to really be kind of a sea change for federal regulators as they... Uh, you know, as they monitor sort of investment brokers and that whole part of of, of Wall Street. Um, and also there's a very long running legal fight to reclaim profits that were lost to Madoff scams that just kind of is trudging on even to this day. So there's a couple different uh, uh, tendrils to uh, to sort out here. Yeah, this feels like a blast from the past a little bit to be reflecting on yeah. sort of the legacy of this guy. And it has been a while, so all this is distilled down to in my brain and maybe for just the consensus of what the world remembers about him yeah. uh, is just notorious like scammer that, you know, ripped off a bunch of people. I don't really remember the actual ins and outs of what he did, so maybe we need to catch up here. So Madoff, uh, that, that's that's a that's a good point, Amber. I I kind of I mean everybody kind of remembers I think the broad strokes, but I had to as I was sort of catching myself up on some of the details. I was struck by both how complex and also how simple the whole thing was. Um, I uh, so his name, as people probably recall, became synonymous with the Ponzi scheme that he ran out of his Wall Street brokerage firm. Uh, he did not invent the concept of the Ponzi scheme, but I think it's fair to say that he brought it into the mainstream lexicon. Um, uh, like I say, this was all pretty straightforward. He would um, collect cash from investors, promising to um, invest it, and you know, promising very steady returns over a brief period of time. Only instead of investing the cash, he would basically deposit it into basic bank accounts. Um, and use it to pay back the principal from prior investors while pocketing the profits for himself. Um, and he would sort of give his clients, he gave them falsified documents to say that profits were coming back in um, on these investments. But all he would ever really pay out was the money that they initially put in. And again, he's borrowing that from other people who have bought in. It's, and it it sort of spanned far and wide, and it became this huge house of cards. Um, to, and it was just this huge ruse that he kept going well over a decade. There's actually some dispute about how long he was doing it for, but it was at least for 12 years, according to uh, court filings. Um, and the the Ponzi scheme, I think, was was noteworthy both for its size. Um, the losses on paper totaled more than $60 billion, um, though actually only about a third of that um, represents money that was actually put in in terms of um, uh, principle. The rest is just sort of fraudulent uh, you know, profits that never really existed. Um, but also the notoriety of the clients, which I think people probably remember. Um, uh, clients such as the film director Steven Spielberg, actors Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick, the former Mets owner Fred Wilpon. Bill, if you want to get a Mets dig in here now, uh, now's I, your chance. I was gonna, 
I was going to make a joke about six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but I, I'd, I'd be I'd be happy to talk about the Mets. Um, no, keep going though. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, uh, this went on for many years, and it basically got uncovered by the 2008 financial crisis, um, where people were trying to extract all the capital they ever could, and this included the profits they thought they were raking in off these. Uh, Madoff investments um, come to find out, of course, there are no profits because there were never any investments made. Uh, Madoff eventually confessed, uh, uh, confessed to both of his sons in 2008 that the whole thing is an enormous lie, uh, huge fraud. They turn him into law enforcement. Madoff eventually pleads guilty to a bunch of fraud charges. He was sentenced to 150 years in prison. This is mostly a symbolic sentence. It's life in prison. Um, he was actually denied an early release last year, and he died of kidney disease last week. He was um, 82 years old. Uh, and I just, I didn't want to gloss over here. We were kind of just speaking, you know, glibly about these, like, um, you know, super wealthy clients who, who got ripped off. Um, but the scam really roped in investors of all sorts and of all um, levels of wealth, uh, many of whom had their entire livelihoods wiped out by the fraud. There are also at least three suicides linked to the Madoff scam, uh, including that of his own son, uh, Mark, who can, who uh, committed suicide two years after he uh, confessed. So the fallout was uh, pretty far and wide. So you've ably laid out what he did and what all went down. Um, but uh, you mentioned at the up top a little bit about, um, you know, analyzing the legacy of uh, the Madoff yeah. scandal, crime, whatever you want to call it. From the perspective of uh, securities regulations, so yeah. t tell us a little bit about about uh, about that. Yeah, so there were a there, we we had a bunch of good stories on this on the site that I'll just sort of give the broad um, strokes of here. Uh, the first um, is just uh, an examination of the impact on on federal uh, enforcement of financial crimes. Um, you know, Madoff's scam went on for like I say, well over a decade. It's not all that complicated, and in addition to causing ruin for all these investors, perhaps a second-order concern, but of, but of interest to our listeners, I think, is that it's a huge black eye for regulators like the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. Um, really missed <laughs> really missed that one. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> it, it just a huge... I mean, it's just it was so blatant, and it was so simple, uh, and there were some red flags raised, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, there was a piece by Dean Seal and Al Barbarino, who, who um, are, are two of our... who cover um, securities for us, um, and they talked to a bunch of former federal attorneys who lay out the changes that were made by the SEC. This includes basically a, a wholesale reorganization of its enforcement division, and just because of the Madoff thing. Um, this included there were two new divisions created, one for market abuse, one for asset management, which obviously touch on these um, these issues. The SEC also, in the wake of the scandal, uh, put new rules in place uh, that required financial advisors like Madoff to retain an independent uh, auditor, basically, like a public accountant mm. that would conduct annual surprise audits to sort of verify that client assets actually existed which is a crucial question uh, in the Madoff case. Uh, the agency also gave a big sort of overhaul to its whistleblower and tips systems. There were um, pleas from aggrieved Madoff investors very early on in the, in the scandal, in the scheme, that basically fell on deaf ears. Madoff had a lot of clout. He was a former NASDAQ chairman. He was a real Wall Street sort of lifer. And that is he is perceived, with the benefit of hindsight, he's kind of perceived to just have been 
so institutionally trusted that no one really paid attention to it, which, as you say, is just a huge black eye. Um, that story quotes, uh, 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 Al and Dean's story quotes a former SEC attorney who pretty neatly assessed the post-Madoff reforms as such. Quote, it's almost hard to overstate the impact that Madoff had on the SEC's reaction from both a rulemaking response and enforcement response. With the requirements put in place through rulemaking since the Madoff case, a corrupt investment advisor or broker-dealer wouldn't be able to do this in the same way. So these are... Uh, that's the end of the quote. These are these are reforms that were specifically engineered to stop this exact problem because it was a huge, huge embarrassment for uh, for the regulators. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to see the big picture of what the fallout of the scandal was in terms of enforcement. But there's also the really practical thing about what happened to all of Madoff's victims. And until mm-hmm. he passed away last week, I think I in my mind had just thought this chapter was closed and everything was done. But I know we have some reporting that that unpacks that there's still stuff active and live going on right now. Yeah. Uh, well, our own Andrew Strickler is really the MVP here. He was he was all over the Littler case as uh, as Bill laid out, and he 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 broke down the sort of broader for for lack of a better for lack of a better phrase the Madoff fraud recovery effort. Uh, really interesting story, and that and that continues to this day. Amber, like you say, I mean, if you it was it's obviously we're 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 a decade removed from him. Uh, pleading guilty, um, but uh, that is still unsettled. The justice system doesn't always move so swiftly in this regard, especially when there are uh, thousands of aggrieved uh, former clients here. Uh, as of today, there are hundreds of Madoff-related uh, actions that are still open in federal bankruptcy courts. There are others that are pending at the Second Circuit uh, or in international courts. There was a lot of overseas investment involved. This basically just... Um, to oversimplify a little bit, there's a lot of complicated sort of financial um, and uh, legal tools at play here. But I mean, these are basically there's there's been a fund set up um, to make the Madoff victims whole. And through that, you have to bring legal actions against whether it's Madoff associates or feeder funds or beneficiaries of the scheme. But there's, like, you know, whole sort of legal processes you have to walk through. And it takes quite a long time as we as that's why we're still talking about it. The uh, clawback effort um, is being headed up by a court-appointed trustee who's, uh, who is named Irving Picard, and he is a Baker Hostetler attorney, and he has been on this for, like I say, over a decade. He filed a recent report that said uh, the um, total recovery and approved settlements uh, is totaled at about $14 billion across more than 2,600 claims to date, and that's um, since uh, roughly 2010 when these started filtering through the court. Um, so like I say, we're at about 14.4 billion paid out. The total value of allowed claims in the Madoff Recovery Fund is a shade over 19 billion. So we're closer, we're, we're sort of nearing the cap of that fund. We're closer to the end then the beginning, um, a significant chunk of that uh, is tied up in a batch of about 82 cases totaling $3.8 billion that are still pending right now. Um, also, interestingly, this this, um, this is probably just uh, of interest to the uh, people who really track the industry. Baker Hostetler, who Picard uh, works for, has collected more than $1.2 billion in fees just on clawback work. Thought that was wow. pretty interesting. Uh, that's that's a good business to get into. If I was going to say, Hostetler. it's good work if you can get it. I guess, yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I would, I'm giving a broad overview here. If you're interested in this, definitely read Andrew's story, um, for a more, uh, fulsome look at it. He's got good graphics in there as to what the clawback effort looks like. Picard himself, uh, as the trustee issued a statement, uh, after Madoff passed, just sort of generally committing to continue the work. He said, quote, uh, the pain experienced by the victims of Mr. Madoff's fraud is not diminished by his death, nor is our work on behalf of his victims finished. My legal team and I are committed to continuing to identify and recover Mr. Madoff's stolen funds and return them to their rightful owners. So this is just, um, you know, part of a long shadow that a, you know, unchecked financial uh, scheme can cast uh, because people are still sort of battling to make themselves whole many, many years later. Again, this week's Pro Se is sponsored by CaseFleet. Experience a better way to build winning cases with CaseFleet's case management software. This software provides lawyers with tools for reviewing evidence, organizing facts, and identifying trends that would otherwise remain hidden. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. On Tuesday afternoon, a jury found former police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of the murder of George Floyd. While the evidence was overwhelming, it was no easy feat for prosecutors. Here to explain how they reached this historic verdict is reporter Kara Bayless, who covered the trial for Law 360. It's nice to have you back, Kara. It's nice to be back. Thanks for having me. So uh, we had you on the show a few weeks ago to preview this trial because it is so impactful and all eyes were on what was going to happen here. I think some people followed along closely, but many others only tuned back in to hear the verdict. And I want to kind of break down how we got there, because I think that's really important to understand. Let's start with just a top line of what charges was Chauvin facing here? Sure. So way back in May, days after George Floyd uh, was killed, uh, there was a complaint brought with two charges, and that was brought by local prosecutors. And so that was for second degree manslaughter and third degree murder. When the attorney general's office took over the case, uh, they added the weightier charge of second degree murder, uh, which carries an up to a 40 year sentence. Um, and that was always going to be the most difficult one to prove uh, because it's under the felony murder rule. Uh, so you don't have to show intent to kill, but you do have to show that Chauvin was committing an assault uh, when he was restraining Floyd. So you mentioned uh, difficult to prove. Let's let's get into what actually had to be proven here. I mean, because to a lot of people, this is a very straightforward case that there was there was one overwhelming piece of evidence that the whole world saw, but it is much more complicated than that. I mean, I know from reading your reporting that there were it seemed like there were three things they had to show here, right? That there was that that Chauvin's actions were the the substantial causal factor in Floyd's death. That the way that the officer was behaving was not the reasonable way that a that a police officer should behave in that situation. And that, you know, the, the, the mindset at the time that they were, that he was, that he was acting with disregard for human life that, that, you know, um, so maybe, maybe zoom in a little bit on each of those factors and, you know, show us, uh, tell us how the prosecution went about ultimately successfully proving those. 
Sure. So the the first one I would say would be uh, causation, right? Um, for all three of these charges, prosecutors had to prove that Derek Chauvin caused George Floyd's death. So they brought in a lot of medical experts, pulmonologists, cardiologists, forensic pathologists. Um, and maybe the most important was the pulmonologist, uh, Dr. Martin Tobin. Uh, he literally wrote the book on the mechanics of breathing. Uh, and he took the jury through a lot of really technical stuff about lung volume and how lying on your stomach with your hands behind your back and weight on your chest and neck uh, restricts your ability to breathe, which Mm -hmm. might seem obvious, but he went into the physics of it. Uh, He would sort of untie his tie and sort of show jurors the anatomy of the throat. Um, And so, you know, he, he went into a lot of technical detail, but really sort of the takeaway point that he made that I think was very important was that, uh, even a healthy person put in this position for this long would have died under these circumstances. Mm. And that was very... That was important, right? Because the defense had actually been arguing that, you know, there were drugs in George Floyd's system, that maybe it was even just some exhaust from a car could have contributed. Like, they had a lot of alternate explanations. Exactly, yeah. And that's the defense's job is to sow those seeds of doubt. But the, the prosecution really wanted to show that, that this would have happened even if, you know, George Floyd had had cart conditions, even if he had a perfectly healthy heart, uh, this would still have killed him. So that's that's causation that we mentioned. Um, let's let's pivot to the, the way that a police officer is supposed to behave in this kind of situation, because there was a lot of testimony about that. Yeah. uh, So jurors learned about this uh, 1989 Supreme Court case called Graham versus Connor, which uh, talks about what a reasonable officer uh, would do. Uh, It kind of sets the standard for use of force in these kinds of cases. Um, And so, you know, I mean, it's supposed to be an objective standard, but it's it's very fluid. The reasonable officer is kind of like this archetype and everybody kind of has a different opinion about what he would do under the circumstances. Sure. Um, so uh, the prosecution called in a lot of expert witnesses and uh, Minneapolis Police Department officials. A lot of Chauvin's former colleagues uh, testified against him. Even the chief of police testified against him. Are you aware now that the defendant maintained this position on George Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds? I am aware of that. I believe you testified that force has to be reasonable when it's applied at the beginning and through the entire encounter. Is that right? That is correct. Is what you see in Exhibit 17, in your opinion, within Minneapolis Police Departmental Policy 5-300 authorizing the use of reasonable force? It is not. And why not? It has to be objectively reasonable. We have to take into account uh, circumstances, information, the threat to the officer, the threat to others, um, and we um, the severity of that. Uh, so that is not uh, part of our policy. That is not what we teach. Yeah, it's a really big deal to hear from that chief of police uh, speaking there. But I know we had a lot of cops and uh, people in the department that testified. One of the things the chief of police just mentioned was training. And I know that was a big pivot point in what was being proved here. So so what can you tell us about the testimony around what sh- how Chauvin was trained? Yeah, they uh, had testimony from Commander Katie Blackwell, who was in charge of training for the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, and During her testimony, prosecutors introduced an attendance sheet from a use of force training in 2018 that had 
Derek Chauvin's name scrawled on it. So it was proof that he had recently been trained on these standards. Um, and one of the members of the prosecution team showed her this famous picture of Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck and asked her what she thought of it. Is this a trained technique that's uh, by the Minneapolis Police Department when you were uh, overseeing the training unit? It is not. And why not? Uh, well, use of force according to policy has to be, you know, consistent with MPD training. And what we train are neck restraints, the conscious and unconscious neck restraint. So per policy, uh, a neck restraint is compressing one or both sides of the neck using an arm or leg. But what we train is using uh, one arm or two arm to do a, a neck restraint. And how does this differ? I don't know what kind of improvised position that is. So that's not what we train. So this speaks to the idea that Chauvin should have known better. Um, and is it's important for all three charges, but it's especially important for that top charge of second degree murder, uh, which would require a finding that Chauvin was acting so unreasonably that he was not conducting an arrest, but committing felony assault. Well, and, and that gives us a nice place to to jump into the third factor that I mentioned before, which is you know the, the the mindset of Chauvin, the 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 way that that he was behaving at this time, and um, I know there was a lot of gripping testimony uh, from just from watching it and from reading your coverage from some of the bystanders who were there during the event last May. Yeah, they were so important because they showed that he'd been warned that what he was doing was probably killing George Floyd. Uh, and it just so happened that several of the bystanders sort of had expertise. Uh, so one was an off-duty firefighter who had medical training uh, and was begging them to check George Floyd's pulse to let her revive him. Uh, nobody administered CPR. Uh, another one was uh, Donald Williams, who happened to be a mixed martial arts fighter. He saw what Chauvin was doing and recognized it as what he called a blood choke. Uh, he noted that Chauvin uh, kept doing what he called a shimmy, where he'd dig his knee into George Floyd's neck and move it back and forth to sort of uh, try to collapse the windpipe and, and restrict breathing further. This is him talking about that. When I first arrived on the scene, Mr. Floyd was vocalizing his... Uh, his sorriness and his pain and his uh, distress that he was going through. Um, the more that his the knee was blockly uh, on his neck uh, and shimmies were going on, the more you seen Floyd fade away and slowly fade away. And like the fish in the bag, you seen his eyes slowly, you know, pale out and again slowly roll to the back of his eyes. And he, um, so this is what I seen, this is what I heard, and that's how, you know, what it was. Like, he was going through distress because of the knee. And he vocalized it, that I can't breathe, I need to get up, and I'm sorry. And he'd gone fishing with his son earlier that day, so the reason he mentions a fish in a bag was he was reminded of the fish sort of drowning on air uh, when he watched George Floyd uh, gasping for air. Um, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of evidence here. It's really hard to hear from all of the bystanders um, some of the most compelling stuff at least it was to me um, in watching this trial unfold um, but it wasn't just that I mean we also had the video itself right right yeah I mean it was that was so important and not only the bystander video but the uh, the police body worn cameras picked up on things that I hadn't noticed in the bystander video there's a point where I mean in all the videos you can hear George Floyd 
warning Chauvin that he's killing right. him. He says, I can't breathe 27 times by prosecutor's count. But you can also on the body camera hear uh, Floyd saying, you know, I, my stomach hurts, my neck hurts, everything hurts. And for every complaint, you hear Chauvin saying, uh-huh. Uh huh, and it's kind of shows you know he, he was acknowledging that he heard him, uh, but prosecutors said it also showed uh, real indifference for human life. So all of this evidence that we've just walked through, all of this testimony, it obviously added up to a uh, conviction on all three charges this week. Um, you know, do do you, do you have a sense, and we can get you out on this, but do you have a sense that that you know? was was the the overwhelming amount of evidence here was was that really sort of what what drove this and it's it's you know an outlier case it's not a typical sort of way that a case like this will go or is there something we can glean from this for for future cases involving police brutality because something amber and i have and and alex have talked a lot about on this show is that um you don't see a lot of outcomes like this in in cases involving um uh killings by police Yeah, Kara, we're hoping that the answer here isn't that you have to have a whole cadre of medical experts, uh, videos from body cameras and bystanders, bystander testimony, other cops all saying it was wrong. I mean, there just seems to be so much in this one. What lessons can we take from that? Because every case isn't going to present this way. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, it was especially... I think some would say egregious because it went on for so long. It wasn't a split second decision. It was famously nine minutes and 29 seconds. Right. Uh, I think that, that something that struck me about the the way prosecutors approached this case is that you could tell they were just thinking about every element of every charge all the way through. And there were some really effective moments in cross-examination where they would sort of bring in an element that they hadn't been getting at originally, uh, but sort of saw the opportunity and grabbed it and brought it in. Um, There was a moment when uh, Jerry Blackwell, one of the uh, attorneys working pro bono for the prosecution, uh, was cross-examining the medical expert for for the defense who had claimed that this was a sudden cardiac event. And Blackwell asked him, well, when did that occur? When was this sudden death? And he said, well, I can't pinpoint it because it's very hard to calculate time of death because even after someone goes into cardiac arrest, they can be revived. And at that point, Blackwell said, oh, well, so when George Floyd went into cardiac arrest, could he have been revived? And um, the doctor had to admit that he could have been. And Blackwell said, well, do you think he should have been? And, you know, as a medical doctor, he had to say, of course, of course, aid should have been administered once right. he no longer had a pulse. So that, you know, they seized those moments really expertly. Um, I think that, you know, like Amber pointed out, the evidence was overwhelming. The prosecution had a really strong case here. Um, but I mean, I will say the use of police worn body cameras, it was a technology that a decade ago was fairly rare. They're becoming more and more common now, thanks to sort of the last iteration of police reforms. Um, And I think that's tremendously important evidence in these kinds of cases. Uh, But I will say, I think that the hope with these police worn body cameras was that there would be fewer of these cases. Um, And just in the last few weeks, we've seen headlines about police shootings in Chicago and Columbus and just a few miles away from the courthouse in Minneapolis. And all the victims there were people of color, which, you know, race was carefully avoided at trial in this case. But it's certainly a part of the larger conversation about this case. Um, So, you know, 
I do think that this case offers a lot of interesting insight into how to prove these cases, but I think that everyone just wishes that there were fewer of them. Yeah, I think we can all agree we wish there were fewer of these um, coming through the legal system, but I think we're going to see many more in the, the days, weeks, years to come, possibly. So it's been very helpful for you to explain exactly how they can be proven. Thanks a lot for breaking it all down for us. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Kara. Dinner show is something offbeat. And Bill, I think you have one for us today, right? Yeah, this is more off base than offbeat. Oh, I Um, forgot we renamed it for our baseball segment. Oh, that's right. Sure. Sure. So, um, really committing to the bit. That's good. Yeah. Uh, An umpire, a major league baseball umpire by the name of Joe West, uh, won a half a million dollars in damages last week in a defamation lawsuit that he filed against a former player named Paul LaDuca. Um, uh, this was over a podcast appearance in which Laduca claimed that West had been bribed by a pitcher to call strikes in his favor. This is pretty awesome for real baseball heads. Amber, if you'll indulge Bill and I for a few minutes here, we got to get off some we got to get off some Joe West takes because uh, Joe West uh, prevails in this lawsuit. But I do think it's important to examine his broader reputation uh, in the game. Uh, Bill, I mean, how would you how would you summarize that for if there are any non-baseball fans listening? It's very rare that like officials or umpires gain notoriety for any reason, but he is an exception. Yeah, he's something of a of a of a villain or like a WWE heel or whatever. He just (laughs) he's known as being a guy who is going to get into a lot of arguments with people. Uh, He's, uh, you know ornery i think yeah. would probably be a word that people would throw around about joe west um sort of, sort of an instigator presence yeah uh, yes. and you know um yeah so i think when when someone hears joe west sued someone for defamation i think a, a person <laughs> who watches a lot of baseball sort of giggles to themselves yeah and 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 not to belabor the point here but i think just for a just, just to give the people a taste of what we're talking about i want to defer to the sage words of former white Sox play-by-play announcer ken hawk harrelson i think we have some sound Joe West deserves a suspension, is what he does. He needs a rest. Well, he needs a rest. He's interjected himself into this game and hurt our chances to win the game. Mark Burley can't believe it. I'll tell you what, Mark Burley, Mark Burley is one of, Joe West just wanted to stick it right up his behind, and he did. He, he should be suspended. That is, that is a flat out absolute disgrace to the umpiring profession. What this guy has been doing. <laughs> okay, so the, I'm, 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 I'm cherry picking sure. there, obviously, but that, sure. but but that was the kind of reaction that that uh, Joe West tended to stir up when he would when he would umpire games. But let's talk more about the uh, uh, the actual suit here because it's pretty interesting. I mean, you have an accusation of like outright bribery by a major sports uh, uh, official. Right. So West sued in 2019 over this podcast appearance in which LaDuca had recounted a game in um, uh, LaDuca himself couldn't remember, I think, in the in the it was either 2006 or 2007. Yeah. When he was playing for the New York Mets, uh, catching a a guy named Billy Wagner uh, during a game against uh, my Philadelphia Phillies. I'm going to say the NL East (laughs) is lording over this entire episode. We had Will Pond and now we've got this. Yeah, it's true. Um, Yeah. 
But so Leduca claimed that West had called three straight batters out on strikes and claimed that the reason why he had done this was that Wagner had allowed West to drive <laughs> his vintage 1957 <laughs> Chevrolet. So it was a more of a quid pro quo uh, situation yeah, than a not straight even, cash not, bribe. Not even, so the bribe wasn't money. It was driving his it was, vintage oh, yeah. car. I mean, allegedly. Amber, it was driving a it was driving a sick whip. Yeah, I was um, really not. I was kind of zoning <laughs> out as you guys talked about baseball, but I'm back. You would I'm you would be forgiven for that. He also claimed that uh, West had ejected him a bunch of times throughout his career. According to West's lawsuit, none of that was true. Uh, he cited an affidavit from Wagner disputing, like he he produced an affidavit from Wagner disputing that this had ever happened. Um, he looked at the record books that showed that West had never called out three straight batters for Wagner while pitching to Leduca. Wow. He'd only ever ejected him once. So just nothing here had really happened, according to, to West. Um, last summer, the judge ruled uh, that Leduca had indeed uh, committed defamation here, and he ordered more proceedings to figure out how much he should pay in damages, which is which is what we got this week. You really have to watch your tall tales when you're on a when you're a guest on a podcast. Well, like, it's, a, really it's, a good lesson. it's a good lesson for all of us. Good lesson yeah, for sure. us. Well, I'm taking what... that lesson right now. <laughs> well, before we get to what happened, Bill and I, I at, at the risk of sending us down a di- down like a, a a big digression, what do you think it was like when Joe West's or Joe West's attorney called Billy Wagner for an affidavit? How do you? Think... I would. It is. It is. It is. It is baseball fanfic. Y- yeah. Uh, right. To, exactly. To <laughs> baseball legal fanfic. Yeah. Right. Um, this is. This is. You were. This is right in your wheelhouse. Okay. Uh, so, so what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we got the ruling the this week, and um, the judge awarded uh, $250,000 to West for mental anguish. Uh, he said that Leduca's statements had caused West legitimate anxiety about whether or not he had cost West uh, an induction into the Hall of Fame. Oh, the wow. quote. The plaintiff expressed a legitimate concern that. If Hall of Fame voters credited LaDuca's false assertion regarding his integrity and character, he might not be elected for induction into the Hall of Fame for the same reasons as otherwise (laughs) excellent players, Shoeless Joe Jackson, Pete Rose, and Barry Bonds. Okay. So uh, it's so he he really was saying like this had caused you a lot of stress and and we're going to give you some money for that. He also awarded $250,000 more for economic harm, but I should note that that was far far less than the 11 million dollars West <laughs> had I love uh had requested for what he what he said was a a plan to uh re- uh, revive, remediate his reputation by hiring PR firms and all. You need more than stuff. eleven million for that, Joe. Sorry, the court uh, said it would just be way too speculative to figure out if he was going to lose money as a result of this. "Quote: Baseball fans notoriously speculate all the time about which players will and will not be elected, or should or should not be elected to the Hall of Fame. It is not proper for a court to base its award of damages on similar speculation as to whether the plaintiff will be elected to the Hall of Fame." So it was fun to to obviously see Joe West in court, but it was also fun to see some of these references to baseball popping up in this opinion. Clearly, the ju- it seemed like the judge, uh, they they themselves were were somewhat of a baseball fan, so um, a, a fun read. Everyone should, I, w- I would suggest everyone go and give it a read. Do you ever think we can get the um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame version of these kind of claims, like some uh, bands talking crap about each other and uh, that keeping them out of the... <sighs> vaunted halls there problem problem is amber you start throwing around defamation claims involving you know rock and roll hall of fame folks i, I yeah. don't know it's well, it's you're you're really going down a slippery slope there a lot, well, of, first a lot off, of stuff went down yeah well it will well for the rock and roll i mean it's cool everyone knows like 
a pillar of the of your rock and roll hall of fame candidacy is like doing bad stuff and being cool about it like yeah sure. it was the best part of like you're any cool behind the music i've ever watched yeah sure. the bad stuff so i don't know that seems specious to me but i don't know uh anyway joe west can get back to doing what he does best uh uh speculative balk calls uh and staring down uh pitchers he did suggest in this lawsuit this the 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 opinion said that west intends to retire at the end of this year so uh this oh will wow be our, the swan this will song be our final our final year with joe west. okay <laughs> look forward to that well, thanks for bringing that one, guys. Um, I even found it interesting, and it was all baseball. So we've had some real, some real. Um, yeah, you see. Yeah, we've had some real hits here instead of strikes in our baseball coverage. So Way to go! That's you as know good what? As I can I'm gonna accept it. Wow. Could you tell Hell how yeah. hard I had to think to get to that? <laughs> hits too? instead of strikes. <laughs> We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest, Kara Bayless, and contributing reporters this week, Al Barbarino, Andrew Strickler, and Dean Seal. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. It really does help other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we talked about, go on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.